Stepping up to family, but um, as you can imagine, you do the thing where you okay, I need some, I need some images here, um, and you go, you Google family, and you get images like this: perfect, wonderful family. Uh, I saw, I saw this one, and then I did a head count, a ratio of male adults to females, and something that didn't seem quite right. And then I saw where it was from; it was somewhere in Utah, and I thought, okay. <laughs> so we'll move on from that one. Here's a lovely generation. It's it's, it's perfect, isn't it? It's lovely. I don't like these kind of photos. I like these ones. I like these family photos. So it's a bit dark. I reckon I've done this before, but it's such a winner. Don't you just love seeing those family photos that go horribly wrong? Thank you, 80s. You were such a gift to us. Such a gift in hairstyle to comedy. Look at this family. I like this one. I reckon, I reckon that little fella is... He's, he's caught on and he's gone this is not going to work out well for me. <laughs> I think he's, he's imagining forward to his 21st birthday when this gets put up there. Um, nah, that's the, who, who here, hands up, hands up if you ever were a part of the family photo where you all had to wear the same thing. I know you're nodding, Kendall Batley Bruce. I've seen them. Um, I do feel like that part of the humour here, I'm not sure, I feel a bit personal, because I think part of the humour here is meant to be that they're all redheads. And as someone who's got very Celtic colourings, I, I, um, I, I, I'm adverse to ginger bashing, but I think the comical thing is more the, um, the attire there. Um, I love this one. Look at, look at Nana. Why do I get stuck with the brat all the time? Look, look at her. Why do I in these photos? Why do we... Look at the guy up the back. <laughs> He's going every year. Every year this happens. Uh, that's it. So that's a real family, right? That's a real family. And this one, just, oh, you can't see that too well. It's monkeys. And you can't see it well, sorry. Our, our, our projector. But if you ever, the, the, yeah, the monkey with the blue shirt is going, these humans are ridiculous. Like, it, the, the, you should see the, the look of the monkey there is so furious at whatever is going on there. Anyway, that's families, right? That's families. Um, like I said, I, I, as I was reflecting on um, this morning and talking about the, the role of the family and God's intent and purpose for family, and we'll talk about it on a whole lot of levels, um, I thought about this phrase of stepping up to family because I uh, wrote some words just in our, in our um, church news this morning where the truth is, um, well, it seems really clear that, that God's plan is that we should think of the important relationships in our life, not just our biological ones, but at a number of levels, we should think of them in terms of family. Um, and that requires something of us 
because the level of commitment, I think everyone would acknowledge this innately, the level of commitment that you've got to someone who's a casual acquaintance or a loose friend, it just doesn't require as much of you. And so I, I guess from the outset, I want to acknowledge, we're going to take a look at how there is something here to be stepped up to. The language of stepping up to something is the language of responsibility. And to consider yourself to be in relations, in a family relationship with someone um, comes with a sense of responsibility in its best sense. Um, I think hopefully you've all had experiences um, of family at its best. And I don't know what your family's like. And whenever you, whenever you dive into a topic like this um, in an open gathering like this, you're very, very aware that our experiences of family are going to be really mixed here. But I'm trusting you've all had an experience of family. Maybe it's not your biological one. Maybe it is an extended family. Maybe it is um, sort of a, a relational family where you've all also experienced that actually some of the very best of life comes through those, those close relationships as well. Um, but what, I, what I'd like to start off by doing this morning, this idea of stepping up to family, is going right back to the beginning of Scripture to see how it really is that, that God's plan A, it's, it's embedded right there in the way in which he structures and forms humanity, this whole thing, this whole creation, the sense of responsibility towards each other and the importance of family and therefore the importance to step up to them is really embedded. It's really such, to such an extent that I want to suggest to you, and again, there's so much complexity in all this, I do get that, but to flow, to resist or to not acknowledge God's plan A, which kind of assumes that he, if you're here this morning, you, uh, you agree that actually the Bible is a place where we go to, to to see how life should be lived. Maybe some of you here are like, well, I'm not sure that I'm that interested in what the God of the Bible's take on family is. Well, I get that. Um, but hopefully you'll flow with us here this morning where I want to say if you do, if you do say, well, um, yeah, we, we, go to, we go to Scripture, we go to God to see how, how life is meant to be lived, what does human flourishing look like, then I think you can't ignore from the very start that to flow against that idea of stepping up to those relationships is actually to flow against the current, the, the way in which God's designed things, um, which maybe sometimes explains, I know in my life, those times where I felt like to withdraw from some of those relationships, and they happen on different levels, or to, to not value, it actually then feels like I'm flowing against the tide. Um, so we've all had that temptation where we want to step out of those relationships because we think it'll be easier. And maybe sometimes in the short term it is. But ultimately, there's a blueprint, there's a design here. We go to Genesis. And again, uh, before we read that, Genesis, it's, you know, Genesis is such an important book. Uh, the way we read Genesis is so important because particularly the first two chapters. We read the first two chapters because here is where the God of the heaven and the earth, the, the God with the capital G, the creator of the universe, gets to lay down his, uni, uh, his blueprint uninterrupted by humanity. So he gives us, for some reason, and he's got his reasons, clearly, he gives us free will, free choice. So after chapter 2, the story is about God who's got a plan and who's got an ideal his interaction and the influence of humanity. And it's kind of a bit, 
we've got to do some sifting but in chap- uh, to see what is God's plan. But in chapters 1 and 2, God gets free reign. He gets a clean sheet. And so it's so important for so many things, we come back to those chapters and see this is God's intent. And particularly when it comes to, uh, to the family and, to come, and really the role of humans in, in general. So in Genesis 2, verse 15, we see uh, it says, The Lord God took the man, representing humanity, and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. That sounds like he's given him a landscaping job. It's a little bit more significant than weeding. That actually is, is again, the language in Genesis, the way we read that book, we've got a, um, I, I believe there's historical reality and truth in that, absolutely, but we've got to read it for its intent, which is there's lots of metaphor, there's lots of powerful symbolism. So Adam is not Amen, he is humanity. And the Garden of Eden is not, you know, some flowers and some, you know, a nice stream at the back. It is creation. And so when it says the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work and take care of it, he's saying God has left humans responsible and in charge of creation. It's really significant. And actually, biblical scholars would say this is what they call human agency. I've mentioned this before. Sometimes it feels there's a temptation to think that kind of the most spiritual and powerful and exciting way that God acts is when he has nothing to do and works around humans. And like does the, it's almost creating God like at his best, he's like a Marvel superhero with superhuman powers who just zaps things and goes bang. And that's like, that's God at his best. I mean, that's, that's God, that, that happens. I believe in that. But Genesis 2 says that his plan A is to work through people. That's his plan A. Crazy plan. <laughs> I sometimes wonder whether he's, I sort of, hey, how, how you go with that plan there, Lord, as you look around. But that is his plan. We talk with the language of he's given humans dominion. Now, because of who humans are, because who you and I are, we've corrupted even that word. So as soon as you say dominion, that word, there's a, ooh, dominion, that's like power. It's not meant to, it's responsibility. It's the authority to bring flourishing to all within God's creation. That's humans' role. And he establishes that. In verse 19, it says, Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man, representing all of human, humankind. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky and all the wild animals. We just before... Uh, had this wonderful moment where Chris and Erica bought their child, Susanna. Now, if I'd said, look, I've got this idea, let's call her Gertrude from now on. <laughs> Everyone here is going to go, well, no, you've got no, that's ridiculous. You've got no dominion. You've got no authority. This is Chris and Erica's child. Naming is a really powerful, ancient, and still is, expression of responsibility. That's what's going on here. God didn't run out of ideas for names. He's saying, this reinforces, I have, this has been created where people have a responsibility for creation, for people. It took all of a chapter and a half for us to completely stuff it up. So here's the first two chapters where God says, this is the plan. People care for people. People 
care and take responsibility for humanity. And then two chapters later, we have the first um, little, in Genesis 4, um, again, it's a very human story because we got a fight between two brothers. Um, actually, it's a very, it's a very um, violent fight because Adam and Eve have two sons, oldest son Cain and then Abel. And Cain, out of a whole lot of the, sort of this, the reason why he got upset, has got complexity in itself, but he, he got upset and got jealous and he killed Abel. And now he's doing this very human thing where he realises he's done something wrong. Actually, at the very, you know, the, he realises that he has uh, violated the very responsibility because he's the older brother. And again, there's this sense in which he's got a responsibility for the younger brother. So that's all there. He knows he's stuffed up and so he's hiding from God. And God finds him and just asks a very pointed question. Cain, where's your brother? And his response is arguably one of the most famous phrases in history. I think because it connects into something so innate, so deep within humans that we understand. Because his response was, am I my brother's keeper? And it's powerful the way in which this is written in Genesis because it's an unanswered question that we all know the answer to. Is, his, his, uh, is he his brother's keeper? Yes, he is. Yes, he is. He's responsible. He has a responsibility. Now, Charles Spurgeon has a f- quite a famous um, sermon, Am I my, bro- uh, my Brother's Keeper? He says, well, he starts off by saying, well, there's a sense in which we're not fully responsible. You're not fully responsible for y- your brother or your sister's spiritual death. There's a whole lot of things you're not responsible for. But in the sense of, do you have a responsibility for your brother, for your sister? Is there something innate to being human, to being in a relationship that means you've got something to step up to? It's clear the answer is yes. This is right at the very start. God is laying down the foundations. This is what it means to be human. This is what it means to flourish. And you could even say, put it this way, the care of people has been placed by God in the hands of people. The care of people has been placed by God in the hands of people. Who feels just a little bit more weight there? You, you, I do. <laughs> I do. Um, because it's actually also true to say, and this even gets weightier when you start to say it like this, you've got to be careful about how we communicate this. There, there's, there's caveats. But when people don't look after people, people get hurt. When we don't do it, there's a real-world consequence to that. Now, we know that. We experience that. But it's a very real responsibility. <coughs> this is the way in which God has designed humanity to flourish, that we all recognise that it's a responsibility and we step up to it. Now, when you preach a message like this, folks, um, at any time... Um, you paint a very big target on you, yourself, myself, as a pastor um, uh, and as a father, as a brother, as a sister, as a friend because I stuff up as much if not more than many of you. Actually, probably the reality is because part of my job, part of the thing I do during the, you know, the hours during the week when you, we're all in different things is to actually outwork this on behalf of the church. I've got much more opportunity to be really bad at this. 
and I take a lot of opportunity to be bad at this. So there is a big target. But again, that's part of the responsibility to step up to this and say, hey, that doesn't make it any less true and any less important for us to talk about this. I want to refer to... I, um, Joy last week um, preached a fantastic sermon, something completely different, but she gave such a brilliant... I'm going to do a thing that Joy does. You Notice when Joy preaches, she does this wonderful kind of summary of the last four weeks. So if you guys are visiting, Joy's up the back here. She's a brilliant uh, preacher. And she does this. She's like really listening. It's so edifying for me. Oh, someone listened. <laughs> and then I go, oh, is that what I said? Oh, I didn't actually listen. That's much better than what I said. I think, I think that's what I meant to say. No. Um, so I'm going to do a Joy because she actually gave us a, what last week um, was fantastic. And unfortunately, there was a technical error. So if you missed it. You've really missed it. Um, but one of the things she spoke about was this idea of the, that we have been seeded and using the biological... Ter- and very graphic, by the way. Thank you for... It was very specific and very... It was not a PG uh, sermon. Uh, it was great. But she was talking about the way in which uh, we see in Scripture we have been placed... Uh, there's been three... If you look at seeding as it being sort of something being planted and born... Talking about how there's sort of three seedings uh, that we see in Scripture. So one is we're seeded into the image of God, who is uh, who is Spirit. So every and and the thing I loved about this, and, and she said some wonderful things that I hope we all heard. Everybody, everybody, regardless of whether they acknowledge God or acknowledge this, everyone carries the image of God. Every person created uh, carries the image of God, and so. The, and the responsibility of that is to respond to people where God has placed his image on them. And so we need to be really careful when we denigrate that image, regardless of what their belief structure is, whether they believe in the same God we do, whether they worship the same way they believe in it. We need to treat that and honour the fact that God has chosen to, to make all of mankind his, his image bearers. So there's this, there's this um, global sort of thing there, this universal thing about humanity. Then um, Joy talked about uh, we've been actually come, we've come into humanity through a physical existence in a family, genetically. We've been born and we have, there's a biological seeding. And then also, and she talks about how that relates back to the first one, we've also, for those of us who've chosen to identify ourselves as followers of Christ, we come into the body of Christ. We've been seeded into Christ. Now, this is a slight twist and Joy, I'm going to see if I'm doing this okay, but it's too late now anyway. Uh, I'm doing I think this helps us think about the three realms of which we have responsibility to step up to, where what I'm about to say and what Scripture says about family can be applied because of those three seedings that Joy talked about at three different levels. And there's responsibilities on all three. So this image of God, this universal humanity one, there's, there's a family of humanity and we've got to play our part. There's a sense of responsibility we've got to step up to the fact that we are part of this broader creation. Again, regardless. And this is where Jesus, man, Jesus ups the ante on this. When when it's parables about um, Samaritans and about, where he says, um, you know, even though they're completely of a different faith and even well outside the family of God in that sense, your responsibility to them is to love them. So Jesus really ups the ante on that. Then we've got our biological 
And I put here relational family because I recognise families are complicated, they evolve. And in the 21st century, there are probably some of you here and elsewhere where because of maybe the dysfunction and brokenness in your family, your primary source of identity and relational love and care, the people you call your family, may not be genetically, biologically related. I have a stepmom, and she could not be more, any more, she, she has stepped up to the responsibility of being my mother, my parent. I refer to her as my parent, my mother. She's not biologically related to me. So we get that. So there's that sort of family of origin stuff, for want of a better term. And then we have the family of God. Again, particularly, obviously, if you're here identifying yourself as a follower of Jesus, you, you've come into the body of Christ. The body of Christ on earth is what we call the church. I think it's really helpful to identify that the church with a capital C is this sense of universality across churches and different you know, streams and bodies. But then I believe, and I think it's there in Scripture, that the primary set of relationships there is through the local church. There's a group of people where you gather together and you do life together. And there's a sense of that's the family of God. And this morning, there's no better morning to talk about that than to see what happened then. To see people gather around, hearts open. We, we, could, we are absolutely family with the vitamins and we celebrate a family milestone because they're us. That's the local church at its best. So as we go through here, I just want you to keep that in mind. There's these three levels in which you have responsibility for. Interestingly, this idea about, um, uh, you know, the universality. Is that a word? Did I just make that up? I'm running with it. Um, it taps, there, there's something that we, I think we observe in culture that's very deep within us. It's come from somewhere because it gets referenced to all this, this sense of connection, the brotherhood of man. We use terms like this. Um, I actually found this, a couple of quotes recently from politicians. So this was Tony Blair in his, I think his maiden speech, a number of, this would have been mid-90s, I think, when he was launching New Labour. And this is, what, this is what he reaches for. Look at the language. He's talking about Labour's approach and talking to his life. It's how I try to live my life, the simple truths. I am worth no more than any other man. I am my brother's keeper. I will not walk by on the other side. This is his maiden speech, his high point coming into And what does he reach for? He reaches for two biblical examples, saying this goes deep. And then Barack Obama does the same. This is in his, uh, he made a, an address, I think it was Christmas 2008. Now more than ever, we must rededicate ourselves to the notion that we share a common destiny, that I am my brother's keeper, I am my sister's keeper. Here he was attempting to bring together, he's addressing this to Americans, but he's, what's the most powerful example of how we've got to be together in this together? And they go for this thing in Genesis 4. So it's there. We've got a responsibility. And I think part of our responsibility um, as followers of Jesus in this space is to be leading the space. Uh, and I know uh, there's so much scope. I mean, the fact that I've actually... Um, Tony Blair's quote, if you go and Google that, I'm sure I'll get an email. But he was actually launching new socialism, so I'm sure I'm going to get an email about that. And Barack Obama, I know so many of you got to hear opinions about that. And We could go into so many political things here. Um, but, um, but I do think 
it should be believers who should be most passionate about our environment. Because that's the job we were given, right? We were given that job. We should be most passionate about the injustices for minority groups, for those seeking asylum. We should be leading that. And what we tend to do, and I put my hand up here, is sit back and go, oh, we can't wait. Where, where's the modern-day Martin Luther King? Where we, where's, where's the modern-day Mother Teresa? Well, before Mother Teresa was Mother Teresa, she was Mother Teresa unknown to a bunch of orphans in Calcutta. Before Martin Luther King was Martin Luther King, he was a pastor of a local church who one of her, his parishioners got arrested because she sat on the wrong seat in the bus. The responsibility is at grassroots level first. That's where you are, the next Martin Luther King, the next Mother Teresa. It just might be in your workplace or in your street or in your family. And then, and we've, we've, talked, we've talked about this. If God chooses to elevate that, wonderful. But you never graduate from the responsibility of being your brother's keeper in your street, in your workplace, for the person right in front of you. And that's something that's our identity. So what does stepping up look like? I want to suggest just really quickly, this is just to get practical for, uh, for a couple of moments. I want to talk about three postures that bring healing in family. Remembering family can work on all these different levels. Um, and I think, uh, you know, these, this is not going to be rocket science here. And actually, it's probably going to be very similar to things you've heard me talk about before. And they're observations, again, that come from the fact that I've probably made more mistakes in all three areas because my role, my life, is to kind of be active in all three of these areas and have been in conversations where I've seen incredible healing and restoration and amazing things happen in relationships and I've also been responsible for them on all three levels. Um, so this is really a summary of things that I... I and I say three postures because when, particularly when things go bad in relationships, what we'd love to have is a silver bullet. The one thing, the one bunch of flowers, husbands, that you can't buy and you certainly, from what I learned, you won't buy it from a service station. The one bunch of flowers or the one thing that can be said, the one dinner that fixes it all. And actually that's to deny the nature of relationships and probably the to deny how things got a bit fuzzy in the first place. It's actually a posture, a position that we hold and we take in relationships. Trust, responsibility, forgiveness. If these three postures, when we, when we step into, particularly things that are a little bit gone off the rails, and take postures and look to, look to step up to these behaviours, it's amazing what can be turned around, sometimes over time, sometimes over a long time. So don't hear any magical thinking here. Quite the opposite. But it's a posture. A posture is something you hold continually for a long period of time. Trust. When I talk about trust here, in particular, walking into a relationship, into a set of relationships, and choosing to think of the other's motives or actions in the highest possible way. The inverse of that, I think there's nothing more toxic in relationships than the inverse of that. Going in and making assumptions about motive. Oh, you're just saying that because, da 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 da, -da and a low motive. You're just doing that because you want da 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 da, -da. If you can resist, it's like you almost have to convince me that you're that bad before I'll believe that. 
If you can hold that posture in a relationship, it's amazing what can open up. But it's so easy to do the opposite. So that's that thing of trust. How do we continue to see trust in a relationship to just believe the best? If there's a choice of two things, they said that, they could either mean this or this. Look for the highest one and take that. Just see where that gets you. See where that gets you. Um, responsibility. You know, we're, we're talking about this idea of responsibility. But specifically, if you go into, again, um, in any situation, and by the way, I found this really powerful in, at that level of humanity. I had the opportunity and privilege to be involved in a lot of community groups, um, a lot of sporting groups when you walk in on the committee of management or you're, you're there, the volunteer. If you can do these things, you know, in, in, the, in the business, boy, does it cut through. Boy, does it cut through. The opportunity and the favour, the, uh, the ability to be God's person in that place just opens up. Um, the responsibility to say, to be able to say, to look for, I, I think this is what I did wrong. Can I just say, look, I, I've done this or I'm taking responsibility for that. If you can lead with responsibility and fine. Now, you might actually think in this situation, look, what I've done has contributed this amount, but what's happened over here is this amount. That may be true. It's probably not true, <laughs> but it may be true. But even if it is, the ability to, to step into that situation and say, look, here's what I... Sorry, I, I didn't listen well enough here. Or I, I did this or I did that. Again, as someone who's got this um, sort of perpetual, because of my role for the last you know, 20 odd years of being a pastor, I've got this God guy tag. And so going into particularly um, community organisations that have a really negative view of the church and believe that the church has been really detrimental in areas of sort of social welfare. and Post-Royal Commission, you know what? You just need to own that. Sure, there might be extenuating circumstances, there might be a different story. That's not going to help in that situation. Taking responsibility and being prepared to say, that's genuine and you're right, that, that wasn't good, I'm sorry. That opens up so much. And it's most powerful, I think, in those um, personal relationships. And forgiveness. Now, this is kind of an obvious one, and it's kind of where I want to steer towards an end this morning. <laughs> the ability to ask for forgiveness, to say sorry. You've, you've all been there. You've all been in that, either on the other end of it, or you've done it yourself. When you're in a conversation, it's difficult, it's challenging, and someone says sorry, and it's like the clouds break, the sun shines in, all of a sudden, what was... Not possible to talk about before becomes possible. Forgiveness is so powerful because forgiveness is so closely linked and it's an expression of grace. And I just want to talk, we, we could spend, if you've been around church, you've heard this word, it's one of those words, one of the big ones, like love, where when, when words are big, it's like they mean everything. And when, when, when words mean everything, unfortunately, they tend to start to mean nothing. And so grace is one of the risks of it's like, oh, it's such a big word, and it is. We could spend a month of Sundays talking about grace, and we wouldn't even get close to understanding this incredible thing. Because it, it's a, and, and here's what I want you to think, grace is like, it's a power, it's a force. It's something that emanates from the heart of God. But grace, when it's released into a relationship, it makes things possible. Um little side chat. There's a guy called Bill, Bill Burr. Bill Burr's a comedian. 
highly inappropriate and I'm not suggesting anyone and I've just noticed my 13-year-old daughter is in the room. So um, Bill Burr is not someone I think you should listen to, Daisy. Um, he is, does anyone know, is anyone familiar, I've heard of Bill Burr before? He's probably, yeah, yeah, no, that's, <laughs> that's right, well I've really added myself. Thanks Cam, I would have thought you would have. No, no, no. <laughs> Bill Burr is, is well-known, even if you haven't listened to much of his stuff, he's really well-known for being... Actually, that's a terrible picture of him. This is Bill Burr. That's Bill Burr. He is like a... His comedic stick is to rant. And um, he's like this angry, repressed white guy. And that's his comedy. comes out of him being just triggered by everything and ranting and ranting and being angry. And anyway, I heard um, part of one of his latest... Um, latest sort of comedy things, where he talks about how the fact that a lot of his comedy is just him trying to deal with his, his messed up self-destructive rage that he's got going on. Um, and he was talking about one of the things he's also famous, he just rants against political correctness. He just can't stand, you know, people, the outrage culture. And he is highly inappropriate at times and kind of pushes the envelope and a provocateur. And so he gets all these people that kind of you know, get outraged and pick at him and kind of, and then he gets even more outraged and it just sort of stirs him up. And so he talks about this. He was talking about this. He talks about how he's changed. He's had a, he's got married. He's got a daughter. And he was saying, this is Bill Burr, who is like the poster boy for rage, who actually talks about getting triggered by people who get triggered. So figure that out. Um, he said, he was saying, you know what I learned to do? For these people who just want to, you know, um, you know, get so outraged at him. He said, I, I take a walk, I go into a room, I meditate, and then I forgive them. He said, it's amazing. Now, that is quite incredible. Here we have this guy who, again, is the kind of the, the poster child for being angry, for having angst, for letting it... And he talks about how it's just self-destructive all the time. It's ruined so many relationships. And he talks about how he's found this thing called forgiveness. He just forgives people. Surely we don't need to get preached at by a completely irreverent, inappropriate, don't go and listen to him and don't tell anyone that the pastor told you to go and listen to him. <laughs> but he's finding and tapping into something that's universally true. The power of forgiveness. The power of grace. The word, am I channeling something there? Like my beard, I'm creating. What, what's what are those videos that Michael is ASMR? Yeah, am I triggering anyone or sending anyone to sleep? Or, um, the word, the Greek word for grace is charisma, and this is where I'll, I'll, um, I'll get the I'll get the band to come up. The word for grace, they're over there, is charisma, and again, it's such a big the, the idea of it's so connected with the Holy Spirit, because we call the gifts that the Holy Spirit, which is the part of the Trinity that empowers us, makes it possible for us to live lives that reflect Jesus. The Holy Spirit gives us gifts called charismata, the gifts of grace. It means things are possible. Grace is the thing that comes into relationships that makes things that weren't possible, possible again. There's a story... Uh, it's a story. It's the story at the cross. 
We talk about the idea of people coming to the cross of Jesus, people coming to Jesus, coming to the feet of the cross. You might have heard that phrase before. Um, we often refer to it when people come for the first time to Jesus to acknowledge Jesus as Lord and Saviour. But it's something we should also do regularly, come to the feet of the cross. Um, and, and so it's like this, it's a metaphor for us to come before Jesus. But actually, there were, there was a real point in time in history where there were some people at a literal cross at the feet of Jesus. And it was, you know, it was the most significant moment in history. Here Jesus is on the cross. He's representing all our brokenness, all the times that we've stuffed up, all the times where we haven't trusted, where we haven't um, forgiven, where we have, we've done the opposite of grace, where we haven't stepped up the relationship. That's hurt people, because hurt people hurt people. And so he's representing this. He's feeling the full weight of the sin of humanity. He's feeling the pain because he's fully human of being crucified. All of this is happening. It's a, literally, it's a cosmic, eternal event. But in that moment, at the foot of the cross, he notices one person in particular. And John tells this story. No one else tells this story. You know who he notices in that moment? His mum. All of this is going on, and there's this beautiful exchange. In that moment, Jesus is pretty busy with a whole lot of stuff and he sees his mum. Standing near the cross were Jesus' mother, his mother's sister, Mary, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother standing there beside the disciple he loved, that was actually John. John referred to himself as the disciple. He's the only one who writes his story because he was there, because it was small and intimate. It's not recorded in the other ones because the big stuff's there. This is small and intimate. John was there. Mary was there. Jesus was there. Dear woman, here is your son. And he said to the disciple, here is your mother. And from then on, this disciple took her into his home. It's one of my favourite bits of scripture. But there, with all of that going on, Jesus sees his mum and he steps up to the responsibility of not being saviour of the world, not being the Lamb of God, of being Mary's son. And he feels her pain. And he says, I've got to do something about this. And he sees John, who was the one whom Jesus loved. They were close, arguably the closest to something. He said, you two guys, you're going to meet each other. And he puts them together. And at the foot of the cross, when we come to Jesus, you can expect that whatever your pain is, whatever your need is, whatever the hurt that comes out of, because it's the hurt out of those family relationships that hurt the most, Jesus sees you. Jesus sees you. doesn't matter what else he's got on. He sees you. In fact, in fact, he's drawn to you. He sees you and there's grace. Equally, when you come to the foot of the cross, Expect that you might be John. And he might look at you and say, I need you to step up to a relationship. I need you to take responsibility for being the conduit of grace, the conduit of love. In this incredible cosmic drama that's going on, 
we are both Mary and we're both John and it's still about family. It's still about relationship. And there is grace. Because of what happens there, there's a release of grace, this power. I don't understand it. I just know it's true. I know it's real. I've experienced it and I know it's available for you. I know it's available for you. We're just going to take a moment. Charlie sings and I just want you to close your eyes or do whatever you need to and just think imagine you're at the foot of the cross you are at the foot of the cross Jesus has asked you to come and be there with him what, what, what is the pain what, what is it what's the where is it that, what's the situation where you are Mary and you need grace and healing to flow in and then equally if you are able, if you're prepared, if you're courageous enough to say, what do I need to step up to? Where's the relationship where I might be the source of grace, the source of love, the source of forgiveness? Just come to the feet of the foot of the cross now, just for a few moments, and see what Jesus says. On the mount of crucifixion Fountains open deep and wide Through the floodgates of God's mercy Float a vast and gracious This was produced by Cornerstone Christian Resources. It is deemed copyright and may be used by permission. For further information about Cornerstone Christian Resources, please visit